Growing up, my parents were quite busy working to provide for our family. This meant that as young children, there are many times when I was home alone with my siblings, and we'd get calls from different companies all the time asking to speak to our parents. Now, this was before caller ID existed, so you didn't know who was calling. So I was told that whenever they called, when my parents weren't home, and sometimes even when they were home, tell them that they were showering. But that excuse only works so many times in a day. Or some of these people call back an hour later and I would tell them, my parents are still showering. I eventually realized that this excuse wasn't going to cut it. So I started to tell these people that my parents, they stepped out. And I don't know when they're coming back, but they're definitely coming back. I don't know when they're coming back, but they're definitely coming back. Maranatha, I don't know. You don't know. None of them countless cult leaders and false teachers who are obsessed with the end times know. No one knows the day and the hour when Christ will return. But what we do know is that he is coming. Just as Christ came the first time, he's coming back again. Our passage this morning calls us to remember Christ's return. And we'll work through this passage with three questions. What time is it? What are believers to do? What is it all for? The first, what time is it? Verse 7 says, the end of all things is at hand. It's important to remember the context here. The believers that Peter wrote to were the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He wrote to faithful Christian exiles who were dispersed, dispersed all throughout the Asia Minor region, modern-day Turkey. And all throughout his letter, Paul Peter gives us a picture of the type of persecution that his fellow believers were enduring. Verses 3.9, say that the believers were on the receiving end of evil and reviling, slander, insult, and maligning all because they trusted and obeyed Jesus as Lord and Savior. I reiterate this context because when we have a better understanding of what the believers are experiencing, then we understand just how important Peter's encouragement was. These believers and the very foundation on whom they built their lives on, Jesus Christ, were constantly under attack during the Roman reign of Nero. So for the believer, church was not safe, home was not safe, work was not safe, public spaces were not safe. And Peter's encouragement to these believers, the end of all things is at hand. Now this doesn't seem like the most thoughtful, caring encouragement. It actually sounds pretty grim. And it would be. It would be if he was referring to a chronological end date like April 30th, 70 AD, or to a time when everything will just disappear into thin air. But this was not what Peter was referring to. What he was referring to was the second coming of Christ, to Jesus' return. And why would reminding believers about Jesus' return help them to remain faithful in the midst of persecution? Just imagine for a moment a perfect diamond. It's got all the four C's. Flawless clarity, DEF on the color scale, several carrots and whatever cut. Maybe some of you don't even have to imagine, you could just look down on your finger. 
But full disclosure, my wife has to imagine. She has to imagine with you what it looks like when a light shines on this diamond. The light reflects through the different contours of this very expensive stone and produces a beautiful array of colors. Now what happens if we were to shine the light of suffering through the precious truths of the gospel? What truths would be reflected out of the gospel? One of those truths is that our Lord and Savior Jesus, He's coming back. Christ's second coming is a very important facet of the good news that's often overlooked. And listen to what New Testament professor Alan Bandy writes. The second coming of Christ is a necessary feature of the gospel message. Christ's first coming brought salvation through his death and resurrection, but his second coming will bring about the resurrection of our bodies, which is the final goal and hope of our salvation. The hope we have of his return is more than an addendum to the gospel. It gives us the confidence of his victory and the salvation of our mortal bodies from sin once and for all to have a glorified, resurrected body that is pure, immortal, and incorruptible. So yes, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, came and lived in perfect obedience without sin. Yes, He laid down His sinless life for us on the cross, taking on the wrath we rightfully deserve because of our sinful death. Yes, He rose again from death to new life in three days, conquering sin and death, and ascended into heaven and is seated on the throne. And all who confess Jesus as Lord and Savior will be saved. We see this, Acts 4, 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. To all these truths, we say, yes, praise God, amen. But there is more. We often look back at Christ's saving work, and we forget to look forward to the completion of His saving work. And this is the encouragement these persecuted believers needed. They needed something to look forward to. Something that could keep them going day to day as they endured ongoing suffering for following Christ. In my study on Christ's return, I'm, I came across many reasons for why Jesus' return is so important. But I want to highlight three. Reason number one, verification. Jesus promised it and he fulfills his promises because his word is true. We just read in Matthew 24, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We can trust that just as Jesus fulfilled the promises of his first coming by taking on flesh, he will fulfill his promises of returning once again as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Reason number two, retribution. Jesus will come to judge and make all things right. This world is filled with sinful, willful rebellion against God. And as we often confess together through the Apostles' Creed, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will justly give everyone what they deserve, and He won't miss or overlook a single word, single deed, single heart motive. This is why Paul can write in Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. 
but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This means that we can let go of seeking revenge. And this means that we can even love our enemies as we are called to do. Because we can trust the perfect judge will come and will bring justice according to truth. Reason number three, redemption. Jesus will come to fully redeem his people and his creation. God started his redemption process when Adam and Eve sinned against him. And as we read in Ephesians 1, 7, Jesus' shed blood paid in full the immense debt that we owe. The death of Christ was an essential and necessary part of this redemption process. But that's not where our redemption in Christ ends. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Our redemption in Christ will be complete when He returns. When Christ returns, all believers will be transformed and given a body like Christ, perfected, delivered from sin. These believers, they needed to be reminded of Jesus' return. When we read early in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, According to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. They needed this reminder that their living hope, the risen Christ, was still alive that he was actively waiting to return, that there would come a day when they would stand before Jesus and say, Lord, it was all worth it. Just as this reminder of Christ's return was very important for the persecuted believers, it is very important for those of us who are suffering now. But it should also serve as a wake-up call for those of us who are complacent. Our complacency is evident when we treat our own plans our personal ambitions, the gaining of people's approvals, the pursuit of our own comforts as more imminent, more important than the coming of Christ. If we aren't remembering that Christ will return when times are good, there's a pretty good chance we won't remember it when things are bad. So Maranatha, I ask you, when was the last time you thought about Christ's return? Was it this morning? Was it last week? Or has it been months or years? I ask this because the second coming of Christ has serious implications for how believers are to live day to day. And knowing this, the second question we must ask is this. What are believers to do? Now there are four commands in our passage. And you can imagine the temptation for the persecuted believers to blame God to question God's goodness, to believe that God has forsaken them. There may even be a temptation to take on a survival or self-serving mentality, to make compromises or excuses, or to muster up their own strength to stay in control as circumstances seem to spiral out of control. But this was not how the believers were to respond in light of Jesus' coming return. Instead, Peter commanded believers to be self-controlled, and sober-minded 
for the sake of their prayers. This reminder of Jesus' return was not meant to bring panic, but it was meant to bring peace. It was meant to lead to self-control and sober-mindedness. We're prone to believe that self-control and sober-mindedness has to come from within. We hear people say things like, you are the master over your life, so you have to take control of your desires. You have to empty your mind to have true inner peace. But to be self-controlled and sober-minded in a biblical sense comes from having a God-controlled perspective on life. It's, about looking, it's not about looking within, because the deeper you dig, the more you'll realize that that's where the problem actually lies. It's not about emptying one's mind, but looking to the Lord and His Word and having our minds filled with His truth and being renewed. This is the only way the believer can continue to grow in maturity and remain watchful and alert. So for these believers who are enduring persecution, it will be so important to cling to a passage like Matthew 5, 10-12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Their self-control, their sober-mindedness, their maturity, their watchfulness were to be based on the promises that Jesus made in the Sermon on the Mount. Their view of the Lord, their view of their own selves and the circumstances, their prayers were to be grounded on God's word. Remembering Christ's return was meant to bring peace, not panic. These Christians weren't supposed to go and sell all their possessions, withdraw from society, move into some remote mountain to wait for the coming day. Absolutely not. Instead, we see Peter's second command to these believers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. This is very strong language that's being used. The word earnestly can also be translated fervently and is used when athletes strain to reach the finish line. So Peter's command was to stretch yourselves in loving one another and to double down on it in the midst of suffering. Peter has emphasized throughout this letter that one of the most important characteristics of the church is love among the believers. 1 Peter 1.22 Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 2.17 Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 1 Peter 3.8 Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Keep in mind that these believers were still growing as children of God, so sinning against one another was bound to happen. Not only was there the stress of everyday living, but there was added tension of living under persecution, which most likely led people to sin. It most likely led people to act out of line with gospel truths. So knowing this, Peter's encouragement was to love because love covers over a multitude of sins. 
Now he can't possibly mean that one should overlook, hide, or ignore one another's sins. We know this because he's written in chapters 1 and 2 that the believers are to be holy and to not follow in sinful patterns, and in doing so, displaying the holiness of God. Proverbs 10.12 helps us, which says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Conflict, but don't add fuel to the fire by responding with hatred, by holding on to bitterness or grudges. Instead, seek the good of others, even if you are the offended party. Peter encouraged these believers to love one another because they were to display through their own lives, through their own love, this reality that the blood of Christ covered their sins. This reality that their sins were no longer held against them. John 13, 35 says, By this all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And you know what's crazy? You know when Jesus says this? He says it after washing his disciples' feet, knowing what's to come. He knows that he's about to be betrayed. He knows that he's about to be denied. He knows that he's about to die on the cross. And yet he continues to love. Think about this. When a group of about 150 to 200 people get together for many, many years, what's bound to happen? You don't have to answer. Just think about what's bound to happen, right? You might have all different sorts of answers. One thing that's bound to happen, we're bound to sin against each other. We're bound to sin against each other. Yet I do think that many churches, including our church, we're prone to forget this. We're prone to forget that we're a group of believers who will sin against each other. So as a result, we create a culture where we keep people at arm's distance, where people don't confront or speak the truth in love, where people don't really share deep-rooted fights with sin. That's one side. I think the other side could be this. We approach one another with a three-strikes, you're-out mentality. Some of us may even have a one-strike-and-you're-out mentality. Both lead to missed opportunities to display one of the greatest benefits that we have in Christ, our forgiveness of sins. Our forgiveness of sins. The third command given to these believers was to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I was reading about the Old Testament thought on hospitality because God's people, they were commanded to take in and be hospitable to sojourners, foreigners, to exiles. And I came across, came across this and I thought it would be very helpful in how we understand hospitality. The function of hospitality is to transform an unknown person who may pose a threat into a guest, thus removing the threat. This goes to show that hospitality was not just about action, but also affection. It wasn't just about opening up one's home and feeding others, but it's about receiving them, loving these guests with joy rather than grumbling. And hospitality, opening up one's home to others, it was vital to the early church. It was a very practical way to show love for the other. 
And not only was it very highly valued among Christians, but it was also a very important value for the rest of the ancient world. Right? Today, we can book hotels across the world with points. We can purchase, rent buildings to worship in. But this wasn't the case for the believers in the ancient world. Missionaries, they would need places to stay when they would travel to preach the gospel. Believers, they would need homes to meet in so they can worship together. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that Christianity could not have spread if it wasn't for the hospitality of believers. And I think Peter's command here to be hospitable to one another without grumbling, it's tied to its importance in the early church. Because as persecution persisted, believers probably thought about closing up their homes to prevent further danger. And that would have hindered the spread of the gospel. That would have hindered believers gathering for worship. So this teaches us that hospitality is not showing off to others how much you have, how far you've made it, how put together you are. That's self-worship. Hospitality is about blessing others with the gifts that the Lord has given you. It's about welcoming the stranger, about encouraging the brother or sister in Christ, about pointing others to Christ and furthering God's kingdom. Hospitality is about worshiping the Lord. The final command from Peter was to use the God-giving gifts to serve one another. This sounds very insensitive on Peter's part to command believers to continue serving while they're suffering. The believers had what seemed like legitimate reasons to pause on the, pause their serving. But Peter commanded that they continue to serve because serving was a powerful reminder of Jesus. It pointed to the one who came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. And these believers, they were called to be good stewards of the gifts that were given to them according to God's immense and varied grace. It's very common that we use this stewardship language when it comes to personal finances, but that's not the case here. We're called to steward every, every area of our lives, or even these gifts that the Lord has given us because it's been given to us by His grace. So Peter's call for good stewardship of these gifts means that there's also bad stewardship. And one of the most stern warnings is from Jesus' parable of the talents in Matthew 25, where the first two servants who doubled the five talents and the two talents they received, they hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But the last servant, we hear this. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you gathered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. This command to be good stewards of God's gifts, it still stands for us today. God's grace goes beyond our sinful debt being paid. Absolutely, amen. It goes beyond it, though. It's also by his grace that every believer, every believer has been given different gifts. And we are to be good stewards by using these gifts to serve, 
to build up the church. So if you can teach, teach MKids, teach youth, teach DGs. If you can sing or play an instrument, join the praise team. Or if you can make kitchens, make a kitchen, right? <laughs> there are two categories of these God-given gifts that we see, speaking and serving. And each comes with its own qualifier. For whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. The oracles of God, they're referring to the truths of God's word. And we read in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, I prayed this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I remember one pastor challenging us with the following questions. Do you trust that the word of God can do the work of God? Do you trust that God's word says what is true, demands what is right, provides what is good? Do you? The pastors here definitely have the primary responsibility to teach God's word. But we do so in order to equip saints like you to serve by speaking God's word to one another. So this means that this verse doesn't just apply to pastors, but to all who are in some sort of teaching ministry, official and unofficial, discipleship groups, youth, kids, men's and women's ministry, even one-on-one -on -one discipleships. And this calls us to be mindful about how we speak to one another. We may seek to encourage with well-meaning words, we may seek to give counsel with words that sound biblical, but well-meaning, sounding biblical doesn't mean it's biblical. Or think about Paul's strong language in Galatians 1, as he writes about those who are preaching a, contrary, a gospel contrary to the true gospel. I'm sure those religious leaders, they sounded very biblical as they're pointing people back to the Old Testament laws. But he writes that those leaders, they should be accursed because the consequences of such false teaching, of false leading, they're devastating. It leads to spiritual death. But on the contrary, we read in passages like Ephesians 4 that when we speak the truth in love, we encourage one another to grow in church unity. We grow, encourage each other to grow in spiritual maturity. Speaking the truth in love leads to spiritual life. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. The second category is this, for whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Don Whitney, a professor in biblical spirituality, writes this about serving in his book, Spiritual Disciplines, for the Christian life. When God calls his elect to himself, he calls no one to idleness. When we are born again and our sins are forgiven, the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience, according to Hebrews 9.14, in order for us to serve the living God. Every believer's Bible exhorts him or her to serve the Lord with gladness. God's word has no place for spiritual unemployment 
or spiritual retirement or any other description of a professing Christian not serving God. A believer cannot grow in maturity if they aren't intentional about serving. And when I say this, I recognize there are official, more visible ways of serving, but there are also many unofficial, less visible ways, ways that only God will know. But the call is to be intentional about serving. Now, I've been reading through the historical books in the Old Testament, and it's filled with stories about how God's people conquered or were conquered by others, other nations. And as I read through these accounts, one passage that often comes to mind is Psalm 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The Israelites' victories were dependent on whether or not they found their strength in their Lord. It wasn't chariots, it wasn't horses, it was their trust in the Lord. And this has always been the case, and it will always be the case. Believers during Peter's time, believers today, we find strength in the Lord when we trust in him. And the great privilege is this, we're not left alone. The Holy Spirit, the third person of our triune God, the great helper sent by Jesus, dwells within every believer. Now, one comment I do want to make about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not meant to be treated like some spiritual steroid that we inject into the Christian life whenever we feel weak. I actually Googled spiritual steroids I thought I was the first one to come up with the phrase, but I wasn't original enough. But what's more sad was that there was actually a talk that popped up called spiritual steroids. And I clicked on it, and this is how the talk started. The goal of today is to light you up. The goal of today is to fill you with greatness. The goal of today is to fill you up on the Holy Spirit. And I stopped. I wonder if we treat the Holy Spirit in that way. If we treat the third person of the trying God in that way. He's the great helper sent by our Lord and Savior Jesus. And he dwells within every believer, helping us to mature, helping us to grow in our spiritual disciplines as a means of strengthening our trust and reliance on him. And the source of every gift is God himself. So no gift is more or less important than the other. It is all used by God to edify the body of believers. And notice the full circle that takes place. God, the source of every good gift that we have, gives them to us so that we can speak to others about God and serve others with the strength that he provides so that ultimately we could all point it back to him. And this leads to our last question. What's it all for? Verse 11 says this, In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter did not want his fellow believers to lose sight of what it was all about as they endured persecution. He didn't want them to forget 
what it was all about as they sought to obey these commands, as they waited for Christ's return. He reminded them that it's ultimately all about God's glory. And this is a phrase that we often toss around so easily. It's all about God's glory. It's all for God's glory. To God be the glory, right? How many church computer passwords, it's all about, I won't say, you know, right? (laughs) Said so often in the churches, and I think it's very easy to miss the weighty meaning behind it. R.C. Sproul, a pastor and theologian, writes this. The word for glory in the Old Testament described the weightiness of God. Not in a physical sense, but in having such substance and significance that his very being is filled with eternal dignity and importance. And this idea of weightiness, it continues in the New Testament. Glory is described as proper, accurate weight by recognizing the real value. Think about, you know, those double pan balance scales and imagine one side being weighed down by God's eternal glory. There's nothing that can be done to shift the weight, to make the scale move. Glory is his, dominion is his, and it will be forever and ever. Nothing can make that scale move. But in our sin, in our foolishness, we try to take some of that glory that belongs to God and put it on the other side, trying to make God's glory lighter. And as one pastor describes it, in our sin, we're glory thieves. And as glory thieves, we are all living for something or someone's glory. We are all glorifying something or someone and trying to shift that way from the side of God's glory to this other side. And when we forget that our lives are meant to be lived for God's glory, it's the worst possible thing that could happen. When we forget that our lives are meant to be lived for God's glory, it's the worst possible thing that could happen. But you know what saves us from all that? We see it in our passage. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The one and only beloved Son of God saves us from being glory thieves. It's only through Jesus that we no longer try to steal glory from God. Instead, we're transformed into children who won't just glorify God during our lives here on earth, but we'll be doing it for all of eternity. That's the power of the redemption that we have in Christ. We're no longer glory thieves, but we're worshipers of God. 25 years later, not much has changed in my life. I'm still on the phone with all different companies. But now it's for me, not for my parents. And there are times when I'm on the call and they ask me to verify my place of employment. So I tell them, oh, I'm an associate pastor at Maranatha Grace Church. And without fail, whoever is on the other end, they butcher Maranatha. Like, what? Like, and I have to say like four or five times, and I just say, well, first Baptist. No, I'm not kidding. I, M-A-R-A-N-A-T-H-A, right? 
For those of you who may not know, this word Maranatha, it's an Aramaic phrase. And it occurs only once in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. This is how Paul closes out his letter. And it means this. Come, O Lord. Come, O Lord. The servant who suffered not only the physical pain and shame, but also the full wrath and forsakenness that we deserved, he's coming back. The great high priest who gave up his life as a perfect sacrifice, he's coming back. The king of all kings who was put to death on the cross in your place, he's coming back. These believers needed to be reminded that Christ was returning, that the suffering was worth it. But the reality is that they all died before Christ's return. And here we still are today. And Christ hasn't returned yet. And we may die before Christ's return. But just like they were looking forward to the day of Christ's return, we're called to do the same. Maranatha, no one knows the day and the hour when Jesus will return. But the point is this, he is returning. His return is imminent. It will be final It will be glorious. And on that day, we'll join those believers. We'll join those believers that Peter's writing to. We'll join every believer. And we'll say face to face to the Lord, to you, not to him, but to you, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow our heads.